Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. All right, well, let's, um, let's pray, and then we'll head right into Isaiah. We're going to be Isaiah 9, focusing on verses 6 and 7, the topic here, God's governance. Well, Lord, we are gathered here today, Lord, and we need to, we need to hear from you. Um, these, these folks gathered here, these listening, don't need to hear from me, they need to hear from you. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us a, a fresh word, Lord, from the Holy Spirit. Lord, we were just singing that, we just prayed that, but we, we need the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the word for you to come in to, to, to translate and make this, these things of, of, of the Bible real in people's hearts and sure and steady. And, and, and would you uncover new things, uh, lift, lifting stones, seeing what's underneath, healing, providing what only you can do. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, also, it's family church today, so I know there's a fair amount of kids in the, in the congregation. So hi, kids. You can say hi. Yeah. Um, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. We're going to start actually in, in um, chapter 9, focusing on verse 6, 7. But let's actually read there from the beginning, from verse 1. And if you can go ahead and get to that first slide. Actually, that, one more. Perfect. Thank you. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali are, are tribes within the region of, of Israel. They are geographical places. And it says here, and afterward more heavily oppressed her, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. And when you read Galilee, that should kind of spark a little interest in your minds because Galilee and Naphtali and Zebulun, these were areas where Jesus did a lot of his ministry, specifically around uh, Galilee. But it says here, in Galilee of the Gentiles. And it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, again, this is another like echo from Psalm 23, this idea of the shadow of death. He says, upon them a light has shined. So he's talking about these, these areas within Israel. He's saying this, this oppression has happened, but a, a light has come. On them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And this is, of course, referring to the fact that these times of celebrations that we all are aware of in our lives, the time of harvest or the time of spoil, when you get reward is a matter of joy. And he's saying this joy is coming to you. This is a, a matter of the fruit of the light that has dawned in these places. It says, for you have broken the yoke of his burden. 
You've taken the thing that has weighed you down and you have broken that yoke. And the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, all the things that have, have hurt them, all the things that were hard for them to carry, all the things that are hard for you to carry. As in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. You may be wondering, what does that, what does that mean? There have been battles. There has been blood shed and all the things that were there that were implements of, of battle and implements of war and evidence of, of pain and suffering, these will be done away with. They will be burnt up. They will be taken away. And that's the context then that leads us into a verse that you've probably read many times. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Now this, this, these words were, were part of the lyrics of what the children's choirs sang here on Christmas Eve, if you recall that, that wonderful song that, that Angie led. And thank you again, Angie, for doing that. For unto us a child is born. You guys can sing along if you want. Unto us a son is given. Let's give it a try. Run to Ready, go. For unto us a child is born, unto us given, a son is given. Now, that's a beautiful song. It's actually, it's actually a reference to Handel's Messiah, if you don't know that. And there's a really important thing for us to understand is that there are two things that are given, or, or sorry, one thing that's given, one thing that is born. A child is born, speaking of the, the fact that Jesus would be fully human, a child was born, but a son was given. The son wasn't born, the son was given. This is the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And of course, this, 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 uh, this statement from the Bible, this is, this is our prophetic thing from the Old Testament pointing to the birth of Jesus. But the thing I really want to point out to us within this is that it says here that the government will be upon his shoulder. The government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called, and I'd love to read this with you, so please read it with me. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just as a clarification, it doesn't say Wonderful Counselor, it says Wonderful, comma, Counselor, Come on, these are all attributes of his. And notice within this, this is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. Jesus born for us. And notice what it says about this one to be born, this son that is given, that he will be mighty God. The son is God. That he will be the father and the prince, right? This is like all kinds of Trinitarian stuff all wrapped up here in one bundle, and it goes on there in verse 7, And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And then it finishes the prophetic utterance of this section with these words, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will 
perform this. I love that because zeal is the thing that you're excited for, right? Some of you are excited for football games coming up in the next couple of weeks. You have a zeal. They're like, I can't wait to get home and watch this. You have a zeal. God has a zeal as well. He has a desire, and his desire is to accomplish what he just said, to the bringing forth of the Messiah, as well as to bring forth the government that he promises. And like I mentioned before, that's really the focus of today's message is God's governance. If we could go ahead to the next slide. It says there the government will be upon his shoulder, but what really does that mean? What is governance? Well, let me just break it down to a couple simple things. One is it's the idea of ruling over. The second is, is the issue of power. And the third, which comes with it, is the issue of purpose. Governance brings with it the ruling, the power, and the purpose. And it's the thing that controls life, governance. Now, if you're anything like me, let's go to the next slide actually, then when you read the word government or governance, you immediately go to the idea of like, the United States Congress, or the Supreme Court, or a state legislature, or some body of governing officials, right? And you think of it in kind of like a, a separate thing. And there is an aspect, of course, that is accurate with that. But my goal here this morning is to kind of push that to the side and look at this idea of government and governance as like a much more personal issue, which is to say this, what actually governs you? What governs your mind? Who governs your thinking? What governs your action? Because we are all governed by something, right? There's something that, that drives us in what we say and what we, what we do. There's something that drives us into the work or profession that we are in. There's something that drives us even into the relationships that we have. We are governed by things. But the issue is what governs you? What is the thing that drives you? What is the thing that inspires and leads you? If we could go to the next slide. In order for us to really kind of dig into this about what does it mean that the government is on his shoulders, we need to look at some shoulders that Jesus talks about. So if you could please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read a very, very familiar passage that you've probably, just like with the Isaiah one, you've probably read that a bunch. Great. You've probably read this one a bunch too. It's in Matthew 11, and it's verses 28 through 30. Because this, I think, really gives us an insight into what does it mean to be governed, and for the government to really be on his shoulders, the shoulders of the Messiah. Let's read together, please. Matthew 11, verses 28, starting in 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I think, I think every person, at probably every point in their life, when you read a passage like this, you can probably like sigh and be like, oh, that sounds great, right? Like, oh, that, the promise of rest, right? And, and, we, and we all on some level probably see ourselves as those who have either labored or who are heavy laden, at least on some respect, right? It may be emotional that you have burden. It may be financial. It may be something else. It may be a job. I don't know what it is in your life, but there is something that you carry that you would like to not have to carry, right? And he says here, come all those of you who identify as, as being those who labor or who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I think we're really attracted to that word rest because we like to think of that rest a lot. In fact, you've probably said this while you were in your workplace, right? I need a vacation. Well, guys, we just had vacation. Like, you know, but sometimes we want vacation because we just want more and more and more rest. And we're always trying to get out of the certain things that we're dealing with. Like, can I just have some time off? Or, or maybe for you, like me, it's the Sunday afternoon nap. Who's, this, who's a Sunday afternoon napper? Yeah, right? I mean, you, you think about that Sunday afternoon nap, and you're like, oh, glory upon glory to lay down in that bed right there, you know, and get up and watch some football or whatever it is. And like, we have this idea of rest. In fact, I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes the idea of the anticipation of the rest is actually better than the rest itself. Have you ever had that? Like where you're like, I can't wait to take a nap. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. And then you actually take it, and afterwards you're more tired than when you started. And you're like, oh, foiled again by the nap people. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but I've been foiled by naps. Like, this is what I need. This is what I need. This is what I need. And then you get it, and you're like, eh. But let me just caution you. The rest that he's talking about here is not that kind of rest. Jesus does not promise his followers endless vacations, endless naps. In fact, if you read the text very carefully, and please do so, it says you will find rest, and what is that in verse 29? Rest for your souls. It does not say rest for your bodies. It's a different type of rest. Now, of course, he comes and he, he makes this appeal to them and he, he's teaching them and he says, look, if, if you're in this state of, of being heavy laden, of, of those who labor, I will give you rest. But then he tells them, okay, here's the prescription for the rest that I want to give to you. He's like, I've got some rest, but here's how you do it. Take my yoke upon you. Let's just stop right there. What, is he, what does he mean? Take my yoke upon you. Well, as you can see from the pictures up here, I have a picture of a yoke on the left and then a picture of a yoke applied on the right. What a yoke was, and it wasn't an egg yoke. Sometimes people think that, oh, look, it's the center of the yellow part of the egg. No, it's a, it's a farming implement. It's, a, it's for, for, to deal with steer and cattle and oxen. And what they do is they take a strong oxen and they put this wooden piece in, underneath their neck, comes up here like this, right? It kind of chokes. And then a piece of wood on top, and it keeps them in line. But it's not just for the first oxen. The purpose of the yoke 
is to connect the stronger oxen with a lesser or younger oxen that is in training. Now, even though the picture that you see up here, those two look generally like they're maybe of the same age or something, there's always a stronger and a lesser. And what happens with the yoke is it's a training tool. Yes, two can pull more together than one. That's, that's agreed. But it's not just for, for getting more power. It's for training about how to carry a burden. You see, oxen that are used are this are either, are either, either being used to pull a plow, which means they have to learn how to put their shoulders into it in a specific way and trudge forward so that the plow behind them can cut the dirt and uncover the soil so that things can be planted. Or, and in most situations, these oxen would be used for the purposes of grinding grain. And they would have these huge millstones about, about this size, just a huge stone, and it would sit on top of another smaller stone, and they would pour grain into the middle of it. And then the oxen would be attached by a giant wooden piece coming out here, and they would carry the weight of that stone and push it, and they would begin to walk in a circle like this. And as they're walking, that giant stone is, is grinding down on the stone below it, the lower millstone, and the grain then is being crushed and turned into flour. Now, I don't know if you've seen an ox in the wilderness or a cow, but they generally don't walk in circles. Like, you don't see oxen out there be like, lovely day, Tuesday, boy, I can't wait to uh, eat some grass. I hope I can get out of this circle. This is a nice circle. They don't walk that way. Why? Because they have to be trained. They have to be trained to walk in a specific way. It's not natural. It's not their disposition. Guess what, guys? You have to be trained. You have to be trained to walk in the way that the master wants you to walk. And sometimes, at the beginning especially, it can be really awkward and really different because it's such a new way of approaching life. But see, the importance of the yoke is not only the, the direction and, and the learning how, but it's also the learning of how to carry the burdens of life. Now, as I said before, as I said in the first service, there are burdens that each of you have that are what I would call ungodly burdens. They are burdens that have to do with sin, selfishness, and vice. And you probably know exactly what they are. I'm not going to be teaching on those today. Those can only be dealt with with one recipe, and the recipe is repentance. To turn away from those things, to confess them before the Lord, and ask Him to forgive you. I'm talking about a different kind of burden today. I'm talking about burdens that are good and righteous and holy. The burden of work, the burden of parenting, the burden of shepherding, the burden of love. This is what God's yoke is, is to train you and me up, kids included in the room, to train you. You guys are the littlest oxen, but God wants to train you too. And if you let him, even from an early, early, early age, he can teach you how to walk in his ways. And so what happens is, as the older one, as the more mature one is is demonstrating over and over again, this is how to walk, this is how to go, that the younger one, through repetition, 
begins to learn, oh yes, this is the way in which I walk. This is now becomes my walk. And that is what the Christian walk is all about. That's why we call it the Christian walk, right? Is it's the walk that actually demonstrates the walk that looks like the walk of the master. How he lived life. And that's why he says that we have to take my yoke upon you and learn from me because unless you're being led by him, unless he is giving you both his power to to teach you how to carry it, but to also to carry it himself because he does a lot of that, in fact, most of it, we don't actually learn what it means to follow him. Following seems like such an easy concept, right? There's a person in front, and then there's a person behind. The person behind follows the person in front. Well, then why is it so hard to do? Because the one that you're following sometimes goes in directions that you'd rather not go, or gives you instructions that you'd rather not hear, or tells you to surrender things that you really don't want to surrender, or to do things that you don't want to do or not do things that you want to. And thus begins the battle in our minds called thinking. <laughs> you ever heard something from the Lord and then immediately out of your mouth comes, oh, but, 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 this, but there's this, and that can, like, as, as though God doesn't know all the other things going on in your life, you know? He knows. Guys, he knows. But the instructions are the same. Take my yoke Upon you and learn from me. Let's go to the next slide, please. So, to the heavy laden, to the laborer, there are two really, really important questions that I want to focus the rest of our time on. The first is this What actually is the yoke of Jesus? And the second one, What is the rest of Jesus? I'm going to focus on the first one. He tells me to take his yoke upon me. Okay, and you get that. Well, what is that? What does it mean? I mean, like he, I'm not gonna, he's not going to put a giant wooden implement on me, and, 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 and this is not going to be the way it is. He's speaking spiritually, right? He's speaking in a spiritual way to me. So what does it mean, Pastor Jeff? What does it mean to take his yoke? Well, let's, let's look about how Jesus, Jesus lived and, and for the purposes that he came. Jesus did so many things that were like of maybe normal or small significance when it just looks like the activity itself. Let's take, for example, the washing of feet. Now, who here has, has had their feet washed and just taking a shower within the last, let's be gracious, four days? Anybody wash their feet? A couple of you didn't raise your hands. We need to talk afterwards. Yeah, it's, it's, this is a common theme, right? This is a common thing about being alive that, that you wash, right? So why was it so different when he washed his disciples' feet? Well, it's because he learned, not learned, but he is the epitome of what it means to do whatever it is with love. And that's all that the yoke of Jesus is. 
is to take and transform everything that you have in your life and turn it into a conduit through which the love of Christ can be poured out. Your finances, a conduit for the Lord to use for his love to be poured out. A simple thing like washing feet for Jesus was a way for him to pour out love upon his followers and his disciples. And so the yoke of Jesus is all about understanding and transforming your life into a life of love. And that really shouldn't be all that shocking, right? I mean, imagine hearing a, a teaching on love in the church. It's, it's commonplace, right? But is it? Have we let this word love just become something that we say? Something, oh yeah, well my life is about this, but is, is it really? Is it really that, that we have taken the yoke of Jesus and, and just like he transformed everything he did into an act of love, whether he spoke to a woman at the well. She was just getting water, right? You, it's you at the grocery store. Or whether he was healing lepers, somebody who's in a physician. He turned them all into areas where the love of God could be poured out for people. And you probably have experienced this in your life. Maybe, maybe you were the person who did it. Maybe you were the person who received it. Have you ever been in like a hotel or a place where you were being served or a restaurant and you just were like, man, that waiter or waitress or that, that servant up there was just washing my feet. There was just something about it. There was no pressure. It was just, it was just love. That's someone whose life has been transformed by putting on the yoke of Christ. And that's his goal, is to put on the yoke of love upon you so that everything you do, your job, your marriage, your home, your relationships, everything becomes an opportunity for the love of God to be poured out and into. And sometimes, you know, it's so simple that we can miss it, right? You can get so busy and caught up in doing whatever, right? That the, the laundry has to get done if you're at home and the dishes and the, the, and the meal and then you're just, you're just doing but there's no purpose behind the doing, right? Or you're at work and you're making money and you got, you got to get this email. I, I, I pumped out 45 emails in an hour. Great. And was the love of Christ any part of that? Was it sewn into what was done? Because if not, like, you're not being yoked to Christ as you do it. The yoke of Christ is a decision you make every day as a, as a follower. This is, this is the unfortunate part of the teaching is the, the, some of the oxen don't have a choice to be unyoked. Every day you do. And you know this. This is, this is the dangerous freedom of being human. You can wake up tomorrow morning and be like, eh, not today. I don't want to be yoked to that today. So we have a decision every day about whether or not we really want to be yoked to him. If we really want everything to be transformed by him. But the next question is equally important. What is the rest of Jesus? What is the rest of Jesus? Well, again, let's look here in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
Rest for your souls. What is the rest of Jesus? It's to have his peace, is it not? It's to be overflowed with a sense of, it's okay, you know? You know, we, we live in a society that has a, a, a lot of problems discerning the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is a fleeting thing, like when the eagles win. What's happened with them, right? I mean, like, they have just nosedived. And then the browns, what? Yeah, where'd they come from? Happiness is a fleeting thing. Happiness is Nutella on toast in the morning. You're like, is this even legal to eat? This is like crack in the kitchen, right? Nutella. My son got hooked on Nutella this last year. He was like, it's really hard to get him off that. Me too. Like, it's so, it's so good. Is that, I don't know if that should be legal, Nutella. But that's happiness, okay? <clears throat> it's not joy because I haven't found the endless tub of Nutella. I think at Costco they send like maybe a five-gallon wouldn't that be awesome? Five gallons of Nutella be like, I could be happy for like three days. <laughs> or maybe an afternoon if I'm really going for it. <laughs> That's happiness, but what's joy? Joy is more like, well, if you can, if you can kind of picture it in your mind's eye, a a mountain scene, and then there's a beautiful babbling brook running through it. And no matter what time of day you go out to where this brook is, it's just running, and it's babbling, and you know the babblingness. And it's just going, and it's, it's beautiful, it's peaceful, it's powerful, and it's consistent. That's joy. That's joy. It's the thing that's in your life and should be in your life all the time, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. But if we're looking for continual happiness, or if we're looking for not really rest for our souls, but again, we want the vacation, we want the time off, we want the nap, you're missing out entirely about what he's getting after. He's not trying to get after you not to work more. He's not trying to get after you to... um, uh, take more naps or, or get more weeks of vacation. He's trying to teach you how do you, walking through the regular daily stuff that you have to walk through, just going, like, let's just talk about going to work. How do I go to work and take the yoke of Jesus on me? Great question. So glad that you asked. By asking him to transform how you go to work and what you're like when you're there and for what purpose you serve the people that you're there with. Pressure washers, bankers, financiers, bricklayers. I don't know what your profession is, but I know this. Jesus wants to transform what you do so that it is a conduit for his love each and every day. And that's a way to make the burden of going to work very different. You ever seen people again at their work? Somebody's stocking shelves at the grocery store and they're just like having the time of their life. And you're like, how is that possible? I think it's possible because of the yoke of Jesus. 
The yoke of Jesus, the rest of Jesus. And so if we could go to the next slide, my, my question for us are, are these two. Have we truly taken his yoke? And the second is, are we experiencing his rest? And I'm going to spend the rest of our time just delving in these two topics. So the first one, have we truly taken his yoke? Next slide. This gets back to the issue of governance. Are you allowing Jesus to govern in all the areas of your life? And I have up here these pictures. I have a picture of a pocket, a picture of a cubbyhole, and a picture of boxes. Because if you're like me, which you probably are, because you're human, <laughs> you have areas of your life where you're like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, this is God's, no problem, done. But then there's other areas where it's a little bit more like, um, this one's mine. Or maybe something that is hidden out of sight. Quickly, if, if you do have pants with pockets, put your hands in your pockets and just see what's rolling around in there. Because usually the things that we hide, the things that we have, are the things that we have control over and power over, or at least we think we do. Most of you have your wallets in your pockets. It's interesting, isn't it? Why do we keep our wallets in our pockets? It's like, because it's, it's close to me. It's what I have. I don't want it to be stolen. And it's also power, isn't it not? Or maybe you, maybe you have something else in your pocket. Or think about what you have hidden away in your home in a, in a, in a box, a, a special uh, keepsake or something, or in a cubby, and like you're like not really ready for God to touch that. Or let me step on some toes. Maybe, maybe you have an area of your life that you're so used to controlling in a certain way, like your anger. You're like, well, I, I, I know how to deal with that. I, 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 I drink a beer, and that's, that's, how, that's how I deal with that. That's my... There's my cubby for that. And, and Jesus would love to, to heal that. He would love to teach you a different way to deal with it. But you have your own way of dealing with it. And you're like, but this works just fine, except for the fact that it doesn't. It doesn't work fine, and you know it. Because it's an area that you have decided to govern yourself. And if there's anything that I've learned about human beings is this, that we are very, very, very bad governors of even ourselves. We, we often don't know how to take care of ourselves. We often don't know what to do, and we can drive ourselves into the craziest of situations or vices because we're just trying to deal with whatever pressures come up in life. Maybe it's a medical thing. Maybe it's a financial thing. And you're so used to applying this specific thing that's not Jesus, that's not the yoke, that you don't know how to do it. You have to be willing to kind of like whoosh, get the stuff out of your pockets, unveil the things in the cubbies, unpack the things of the boxes, and really ask yourself, have I really taken up the yoke of Christ? Take my yoke upon you, and am I willing to then Learn from him, because that's exactly what it takes. Like I said before, the oxen don't come ready to walk in the circle thinking everything's fine, and neither do you. 
You do not come ready to follow Jesus and to go in every single direction that he's doing because you're, you're set on this thing that's called human independence. You're used to, to, to operating a certain way and you grew up a certain way. And you may be thinking to yourself, Pastor Jeff, there's things I learned growing up and that's just how I learned to do it. Yes, I understand. Well, Pastor Jeff, I, this, is, this is how I've, I, this is what I know, this, but this works. You ever use that one? Jesus tells you to do something differently and you're like, but this works. And he's like, yeah, it's not really the point that I'm trying to make. <laughs> I'm trying to make you into a conduit of love. Not does it work. It's very different. There's a story I read this week and it, it really touched me. This woman <clears throat> was in a terrible car accident. She had been driving and, uh, and her husband was with her and her husband died in the accident. And she was, she was riddled with, mostly with guilt and shame. She was so sorry for what had happened, but she really miss, missed her husband and she didn't know what to do. She was not sleeping well. She just had to take all these medications in order to, to deal with it. Wasn't working. I don't know if you had that experience yourself. <clears throat> Wasn't working. She goes to a conference, and there's a guy there uh, whose name is Bill Bright. He's, he's the founder of the Campus Crusade for Christ. And she goes up to him in one of the breaks, and she tells him the, the story. You know, she's, and she's, she's a mess, right? She's a mess. She's a mess inside. She doesn't know how to handle all this stuff. She's a Christian. She's a mess. He listens to her story. And then he looks at her and he says, well, <clears throat> you know the passage from Romans 8.28, right? And she goes, yes. And for those of you who don't know, that passage, and I'll paraphrase it, basically says that God will work all things out for good. All things for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So this is, this is a promise for believers. This is not a promise for an unbeliever, someone who's not actually following Jesus. He says this and she says, okay, yes, yeah, I, I believe that. And then he's like, well, then here's what you need to do. You need to thank God that you're going through this trial and thank him for even the accident and that he will carry you through. And she balked at it. I mean, she, she heard that and she was like, what? What, are you crazy? And you might react the same way. And I might too. But he said, listen, listen, listen. Listen up. He said, I'm not here to tell you what, what you want to hear. I'm here to tell you what you need to hear. He said, look, until you are willing and able to thank God for even the trials in your life, then you don't actually believe the promise that was uttered there in Romans 8. And that's the challenge, isn't it? That we get to the place where we can even thank God for trials and things that are hard to carry because we know that the promise is sure and that the Lord is is good. You know how many songs we sang this morning that talked about, Lord, you are good? Do you know why that's important to say that simple sentence? Is because if you, if you find yourself not believing it or walking away from it, 
you will not accept his instruction and you will escape the yoke and you will be off in a land without peace for your soul. So he said this to her and she was she wrestled with it and, and I think rightfully so. If you're a human being, you would wrestle with a prescription like that because that's not an easy word. She went home and she decided to thank Thank God for having a husband. She decided to thank God that he would work something out good through it. She began to worship him. She began to bend the knee before him. She came back to this man the next day and she said, I had the first good night's sleep I've had since the accident happened. And that's why this issue of the yoke of Jesus is so important to the peace of Jesus, which is the next thing we're going. We hide things from him, even pains. Are you hiding a pain from Jesus because you think you can carry it better? Have not you learned you can't carry it on your own unless you want to do damage to yourself? Jesus wants to heal us. He wants to govern in us because he wants to transform us. Us, and that's what the yoke is all about. And that leads into the second question, which is this. Are we experiencing his rest? And my question for you is this. What do you actually know about the peace of Christ? You may have heard it said, the peace of Christ that surpasses understanding. Because the peace of Christ, just like that issue of rest, is very different than the nap or the vacation. It's again, it's a fact that it's the babbling brook. It's the thing that is steady and constant. Things not going so well in relationships? Fine, the babbling brook is still there. Job uncertain? Fine, the babbling brook is still there. Marriage on the rocks? Fine, the babbling brook is still there. Problem after problem? Yes, the babbling brook is still there. Why? Because the peace of Christ is different. It is different. And when you've tasted of this, you don't want the Nutella anymore. I mean, well, maybe you want it a little bit, right? Because it's Nutella. But I think you get my just. You, you are thirsty for it. And this is what Jesus says of the peace that he offers. In John 14, he says, peace I leave with you. This is a, a possession. He wants you to have the peace in abundance. I could give it a possession. It's yours. I leave it with you. He's not going to like take it back and then, then give it to you. He's like, I leave it with you. And then he says, my peace I give to you. It means it's something he actually wants you to have. I think sometimes, sometimes people think, well, I've done this or this has happened in my life, so I, I can't have God's peace in my life. You don't know what I've been through or what I've done or all that stuff. Not the point. He wants to give you peace. You remember what it said back in Isaiah? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's his desire. That's his zeal. He wants to give you and leave with you peace so that you can have the babbling brook. And so that you can take the most horrible possible situations that you're going you're gonna to have to endure some of them on this earth. You guys know that. There's things you're going to walk through that you do not want to walk through. I'm sorry you have to do it, but how are you going to walk through it? 
And will you experience his rest as you do so? This is the struggle, is it not? And so we're about to turn to a time of communion, but I have one last question for you guys, which is this. The next slide. Are you unhealed? You see, these pictures are often, they're examples of what it looks like with us spiritually, where these are kind of self-inflicted things where we, we think we can, we can do it ourselves, we can, we can conquer ourselves, we can carry it ourselves, and we have our little pockets, and we have our things in our cubbies, and we have our boxes, and, and it's, this is mine, and I know how to control this, and this is, Jesus, this is what I do, okay? Just to, like, leave me alone. Like, I know how to do this. I know how to get through this. Well, that's what you look like spiritually. You're wounded, and you're bleeding, and you're bandaged. And you're wondering, like, am I supposed to live this way? No. (laughs) But if you don't let Jesus in to all the little pockets of your life, you let, don't let him in to govern and be like, okay, Jesus, what's your plan with my finances? Okay, Jesus, what's your plan with my work? Okay, Jesus, what's your plan with my family? And you don't let him in, he can't govern it, and the places he doesn't govern, there's no peace. And to close, before we do communion, I want to revisit Isaiah 9. So go back there to that first scripture we started off with. In verse 7, to focus our time, it says here, of the increase of his government and peace. Notice how those two words go together. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Well, that's a hallelujah kind of statement right there, guys. Because that means, basically, the more that you allow Jesus to govern in your life, the more that you let him in, even to the hurts, and into the pains, and into the self-soothing, whatever it is that you do, the more that you let him in, the more peace in your life. But the opposite is also true. The less that you allow Jesus to govern the more that you hold on to yourself, the more that you choose to govern with your own resources and your own ways. Maybe you think you're the, the, the smartest person to handle this situation or like that you have some kind of unique wisdom. I, I hate to break it to you, but you don't. You're not wise. You're not brilliant. You're servants. You were made, formed, like clay, and you have a master, and he has a way, and he accompanies his way with his peace, and his way is the yoke, and his fruit is the peace, and the more you allow him to govern, the more peace you will have. And Lord, we just commit this time to you. We want to commit our lives to you. We want to commit the things that we've held back to you, Lord. Would you please come in and govern, Lord? because we desperately need and want your peace to rule and reign in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.